I rise uh, uh, to solemnly inform the House in the presence of family and our military chiefs that the 100th Victoria Cross has been awarded to an Australian. Uh, this award is to the late Corporal Cameron Baird, already an iconic figure in our army who had earlier received the Medal of Gallantry. As the citation reads, his Victoria Cross is for most conspicuous acts of valour, extreme devotion to duty, and ultimate self-sacrifice at Gorchak village in Uruzgan province, Afghanistan, as a commando team leader. He was on his fifth Special Forces tour when he was killed in the action for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross. On the 22nd of June last year, in the first phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird and his team came under heavy fire on three separate occasions from well-prepared enemy positions. In the initial encounter, six enemy combatants were killed and weapons caches were captured. In subsequent encounters, Corporal Baird charged enemy positions and neutralised them with grenade and rifle fire. By drawing fire on himself repeatedly, he enabled other members of his team to regain the initiative. In the second phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird then led an assault on an enemy-held compound. On three separate occasions, under heavy fire, he forced the door of a building. Twice he was forced to withdraw, to reload and then to clear his rifle. For the third time, he entered the building, again drawing fire away from his comrades who were able to secure the objective. Tragically, he was killed in this final assault. Madam Speaker, words can hardly do justice to the chaos, confusion and courage that were evident that day. The comrade who was with him testifies. I have witnessed many acts of leadership and courage under enemy fire during my operational service. Corporal Baird's initiative, fearless tenacity and dedication to duty in the face of the enemy were exemplary and an absolute inspiration to the entire team. I was witness to the ultimate sacrifice. Madam Speaker, I salute Corporal Cameron Baird, VCMG. We all salute him and his almost equally remarkable comrades. In this place, we don't face danger. So we can hardly claim him as our brother, but we do acclaim him as our hero. We can hardly imagine what the likes of Corporal Baird and his comrades go through, but we stand in awe of their extraordinary courage, the extraordinary courage of these amazing men who serve our country and keep us safe.
Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have two guests on with me. Uh, both are former Australian Army. And um, we have a special episode for you. I'm on with Brad Watts and Tom Newkirk. Gentlemen, how's it going? Good morning. Very well. Yeah, good. Thanks, John. How are you? I'm good. Um, just had a... a, a Post Thanksgiving leftover meal, uh, which is pretty good. You you guys don't have anything like that, right, in Australia? No, 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 no. That's an American holiday, mate. But happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanks. Thanksgiving, Joe. <laughs> um, all right, so guys, so you guys were both in the uh, Voodoo Medics documentary for um, two weeks ago. I recorded with Kristen Shorten and Jody Teach. Uh, Christian put together this documentary. Uh, she's a journalist uh, in Australia, and her husband is a former uh, second commando regiment guy. And um, so she put this documentary together. She, What she said is she wanted to uh, focus on on the, the special operations medics who had dealt with trauma uh, in Afghanistan or who had seen the most trauma. And um, at some point throughout the uh, the process for getting everything together, she came across the name Voodoo Medics, um, and then there's a saying that goes with it, and I thought it was pretty cool uh, the name and and the kind of the backstory to it. And uh, so, how did you guys get involved in Voodoo Medics? Well, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll go first, Fred. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll go first, there, John. Um, so. Kristen gave us a call. I believe she did the same. I'm not sure who the first person she knew was, but she gave us all a call. She obtained a list of names of, of people who had served uh, in the two units as voodoo medics, and I guess she just started ringing around and, and seeing who would be interested in in participating in a documentary. Uh, at first, I, you know, most of us are probably fairly quiet about our, our previous lives, and it, it's a bit confronting to sort of have to put it out there in the media, but as the uh, as the project moved along and definitely seeing the final product it was it was something pretty cool in the end yeah yeah same for me so um i've got uh, i still keep in close contact with a lot of the uh, the the current and ex uh, voodoo medics and uh, they just contacted me to to see if i would be interested um having got wind of the um you know the documentary being uh, being considered and uh, yeah i was more than happy to uh, to contribute yeah, and, and Brad, I know you brought it up where, you know, the, the lives that you guys were leading before, uh, you know, everything was compartmentalized and you have to keep things secret and quiet for security and operational security and stuff like that. Um, so one of the things that I asked Jody on the, when we recorded, and this is something that I know to be true from talking to uh, primarily American veterans, um, primarily special operations guys, but also infantry guys, is that sometimes when when talking about this or in the, the case of you guys where you did the documentary, sometimes it's the first time you've spoken about some of these incidents since you've gotten out. And um, I know that that can be difficult, but guys have told me that after speaking about it, they've felt better. Has, has that been your experience? Yeah, I guess for me, um, 
this is the first time I've probably publicly put most of, of that information out there. And the only people I'd spoken to about any of these incidents all those times were, were other guys who were either there or had been there uh, or, or were likely to go there. So, you know, when, when Kristen first asked, I, I asked to be a part of it, I wasn't sure whether the public would actually really be that interested in what we did. And then uh, I guess for me, the, it was more the message that Kristen was trying to get across around resilience. And, you know, you can go through these these incredibly hard but also incredibly fun times and, and come through okay. And, that, and so for me, that was important to, uh, to be a part of that because I'm a huge believer in what Kristen was trying to do there. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. Um, I knew that uh, the intent of Kristen was extremely positive and uh, I looked at it as if I could uh, – share my experiences in uh, in a way that might even help just one person to either be prepared for deployment or cope whilst deploying or, or post-deployment, then uh, then that was going to be worthwhile. And so, the, um, yeah, I, I jumped on the opportunity. Yeah, I think um, a lot of guys listen, um, people who are either considering signing up or people who are already in and maybe considering going to selection for a specialized unit or somebody who was in combat and infantry or special operations and they got out and then maybe they're struggling in some way. And I mean, everybody struggles military or civilian or whatever, but, um, and I think when guys can see that other members of that, you know, for that brotherhood have guys have gone through something and they've overcome that or, you know, it, it helps them out and they say, all right, you know, this is this is normal to perhaps feel this way. And, and it's something that I can overcome, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's a good uh, it's a good brotherhood, like you say. So um, if if we can kind of, you know, t- take turns, guys, and, and go through your life uh, before you join the army and kind of what what kind of uh, encouraged you to join? And then if we can like walk through your careers a little bit, uh, if you guys want to take turns. You want to uh, kick off, Tommy? Yeah, sure. Um, before I joined the army, I, uh, I was a butcher uh, straight out of high school. So I, uh, I did my apprenticeship in butchery and uh, and moved around a couple of different butcher shops. Um, and at the time I was just living with my dad. Um, as my uh, my parents had split, my brother had moved out. I got one older brother, so I was just living with my dad um, and doing my apprenticeship. And my dad's a, a US, uh, an ex-US citizen who came out to Australia. Um, he was conscripted in '66, I think, um, for Vietnam, and then got assigned to 101st Airborne. So um, got a Yankee um, a military background and. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he always used to talk about his conscription and uh, and what he did. His brother was conscripted at the same time. Um, so, and I've got a lot of other military uh, family members. Like my uh, my grandmother on my mum's side was uh, was a nurse for the English Army, and um, uh, her husband, my grandfather, he jumped around in a couple of different armies too. He was Ukrainian, uh, Hong Kong police uh, in the Gurkhas, and then finally in the Australian Army. So, nice. yeah, it's always been there. Uh, yeah, so I um, was pretty keen to sign up. Uh, and did so at 26, uh, always wanting to be a medic. Um, it always just appealed to me. My dad told me never to jump out of planes, uh, and he also told me never to join up, uh, you know, so you never really listen. But I did listen to the part uh, not to jump out of planes initially anyway, so uh, I went straight for medics, uh, being uh, intrigued by 
being responsible for that guy on the ground and, you know, being, uh, having that, uh, that pressure and the responsibility to, you know, look after the guys that you're in tune with and you know very well. Uh, that really appealed to me. Um, I bumped around a couple of hospital units after uh, completing basic training and uh, my medics course um, and met my, uh, my now wife on my medics course as well. So that was uh, another, uh, another good thing that came from my, uh, my service. Nice. Is she a veteran as well? Uh, yeah, she's um, deployed to Indonesia doing humanitarian aid and that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, yeah, she's nice. returned service person as well. Yep. Um, so, yeah, after that, uh, I got uh, offered to come into the uh, special operations, into Second Commander Regiment, uh, did that, um, and then um, was extremely um, impressed and motivated by the, uh, the professionalism uh, comparatively. Uh, so it just drove me forward and, uh, and then meeting the fraternity of the voodoo medics, they're all, uh, you know, looking after each other before and after. And it was absolutely, um, absolutely opening how, uh, how professional and how in tune with each other they were. And it was just, it was just amazing. It was excellent. Um, so yeah, to point to Afghanistan with, um, with uh, second commander regiment and then, um, moving into, uh, the special operations engineer regiment when I got back from my deployment. And um, having had that experience, the engineer regiment uh, wasn't that uh, – didn't have a lot of history. It wasn't very old. It was only about seven or eight years old when I uh, got put in there. So ha- coming from the um, second commando, uh, wasn't long before I was heading up, you know, like a, a medical retrieval team for a CBR element uh, within that uh, within that regiment. Uh, yeah, and so – So just I, quickly uh, – uh, yeah, sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but um, – Sure. So the uh, – the special operations, the engineers, that, that's a more recent, recently uh, created unit. And can we just talk about that a little bit? It's not something that I've, I've heard of uh, often or, sure. or talked about much. Yep. Uh, so they're uh, predominantly made of engineers, um, uh, combat engineers mostly, and focus a lot on, um, you know, device detection um, and, you know, EOD techs and that sort of stuff, as well as having a dog capability uh, decon facility and uh, you know a big CBR element, uh, and they play a lot with uh, the emergency services like the fire department and uh, walk walk through uh, you know dirty zones and uh, possible you know um, CBR NE threats as well. So uh, yeah, it's uh, the 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 regiment was always there. They went through a couple of name changes and a couple of um, uh, scope changes where they uh, you know had to focus specifically on a couple of different things and then they uh, they got really recognised and um, yeah they they took right off. And you finished up with the engineers, right? Yeah, I finished up full time with the engineers and then I I did some reserve time for about eighteen months after that uh, just for a, a rehabilitation platoon uh, helping junior soldiers that had uh, injured themselves in their initial training. Um, and from there, I um, I left defence and went to work in um, corrective services as a prison guard. Okay, nice. And, yep. and oh cool, awesome. So um and then Brad, if, if you can uh walk through your, your life right before the army and then through the army as well. Yeah, no problems, John. Uh, I joined the army uh as a seventeen year old straight out of high school. Um I'd always wanted to join the army or the, the idea first came in year twelve, uh as I was sort of thinking about what I was going to do. I wanted to become a paramedic, uh but at 17, I approached the paramedic service and they said, go away and get a few years experience. 
I uh, lived in a small town called Darwin at that point in time, and the army had moved in, and it looked like a pretty cool job. And uh, I, so I wanted to get out of Darwin. I wanted to, you know, go and experience life a little bit more. And uh, so that, you know, I, I lived in a fairly low socioeconomic area. In fact, the judge was quoted as instead of building a second jail in Darwin, they should just fence off Cornwallis Circuit. That was my home for 15 years. <laughs> so uh, I grew up in a pretty cool place and, and, and with some really cool experiences. And um, so as I was moving through year 12, uh, I indicated to my to my teachers and my parents I was going to join the army. And uh, and my teachers held an intervention. <laughs> they uh, they pulled me they pulled me in and said, look. You know, brought my mum in and sat me down and said, you know, you're going to waste your life. Joining the army is the last resort and all these sorts of things. So they, uh, that, their plan was for me to go to university. Uh, so nothing cemented my decision more. And I, that afternoon, walked down to recruiting and, and signed up. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the best decision of my life by far. And uh, four weeks later, yeah, two weeks after I finished my year 12 exams, uh, I joined as a medic into the army. Uh, like Tomo, I wanted to be a medic 100%. That was all I wanted to do. Uh, and, and so I started the training, um, yeah, two weeks after my uh, year 12 exams while the rest of the guys were off partying in uh, summer vacation, as you guys in the States would call it. Uh, we were at a, we were at boot camp. So I was pretty lucky. I had a pretty good crew moving through uh, basic training. In fact, a lot of the guys I trained with ended up in the special operations community eventually. Uh, and somewhere through that first six months of, of the training pipeline, I, I met a what's what we call an underwater medic in Australia, and, uh, and he'd been posted to the the Special Air Service Regiment and deployed to Rwanda and was the first medic to receive the Medal for Gallantry in Australia. And I heard his story and I heard, I guess, his his process and his life of being in the Special Air Service Regiment. And I hadn't really heard much of it before then. and But I knew at that point in time that that's what I wanted to do. That sounded like the pinnacle. And so over the next four or five years, I spent I, uh, I worked towards it. You have to, uh, in, in the Australian Army, you've got to work through uh, your time and, and, and get the right experiences. As you met, as I met some of these senior medics from the special operations community, they they sort of outlined a, a pathway to get there, which took about four or five years. Uh, that include infantry battalions. Uh, like Tom, I also sp- spent time in the special operations engineer regiment, but I was there for its uh, birth in uh, 2000, when it was uh, initially stood up for the the 2000 Olympics under the uh, the name of the Joint Incident Response Unit. So that was its uh, very first year, and the first year the Australian Army had a uh, a dedicated counter-terrorist, um, a explosive and, and chemical warfare uh, unit. So that was a pretty cool thing to be a part of. And the more I was exposed to these types of things, the more I knew that this is what I wanted to do. It seemed like it had real value uh, compared to some of the other jobs in the Army. So uh, I deployed with the infantry uh, to places like East Timor, uh, similarly to, to Tomo's wife, to humanitarian aid type things. And then uh, after five years, got selected to do the underwater medics course, which for me... At that point in time, I was very lucky. There were there were so many medics who were incredibly capable, incredibly uh, you know ready for that course. Only two people a year. Actually, my year was three three people get selected to do the course, uh, and so to be to be selected and to be given an opportunity was a, was an incredible honour. And I worked with some of the uh, again the most motivated medics that I've ever met on that course. We pushed each other to to exceed. You know, we punished each other if we got below ninety five percent in exams, things like this. It was we wanted to be the best, and we wanted to to come out of that course uh, on top. So, so just quickly, so the underwater medics is that like a a medic with like a dive capability? Yeah, that's exactly it, John. We uh we we're specifically trained for diving operations, and uh but also there's an intensive care element to it as well. So you just your your level of invasive procedures goes up a little bit more 
um, just due to your scope. So at that point in time in the Australian Army, it was you know one of the few courses where, you, or the only course really where you could get to that level. Uh, I'm not so sure now. I've been out of it for about nine years, but back then it was uh, it was it was the course you wanted if you wanted to do those sorts of things. Uh, at the completion of the course, I was posted to SASR, which was the only unit at that point in time that required the uh, the skill set, and then uh, and spent the next six years working in you know this this unit with uh, similar to Tomo, just the most motivated and uh, committed people I've ever worked with. You know, it was a real honour and a privilege to work with. Uh, the, the people that were there, that they were focused on the mission, focused on themselves, and everyone wanted to be the best and and to and to do the best. So, you know, six years there was was a was a great amount of time. I spent like Tomo deployed to Afghanistan, did a few counterterrorism roles, and then uh, and eventually hit that point where, as a yeah. uh, as a young sergeant, I was facing down the barrel of having to go back to real army for a while to do a training stint, and uh, and realised that that wasn't the pipeline for me. So I, uh, I discharged. Made a bit of a plan. Took about twelve months, and then uh, and then discharged. I guess for me, the, the other point for me was I, I, my daughter was born, and the second my daughter was born, having lost a few mates and and seen a few mates kids without daughter, uh, without parents, I thought that you know that wasn't the future I wanted for my daughter. Even though I uh, completely love the job and I still do, I think it's the uh, the best job I will have done and probably will ever do in my life. But that that moment was there. I was ready to uh, to get out and move on. Awesome. Okay. So I wanted to ask you guys uh, separately, um, Tom, if, if we could start with you. Um, sure. If, if maybe you can share a story. I know that you were involved in the, uh, the battle at Zabat Calais uh, in Afghanistan. Yep. Uh, now, I've seen this video of at least a portion of the fight. Um, and I think it was used uh, a couple of years ago, maybe in some kind of documentary. And I, I'd seen it online, and, and the part that I seen was it showed, like, I guess some operators moving behind a house and kind of getting into a fight, like a gunfight on the on the back end of the house and then moving around and continuing to fight there. Um, can you yeah. can you explain that, that battle and, and your experience uh, as you saw it? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, we, uh, we had some intelligence in that town. It was quite a far uh, distance. Um, so we used the, the helicopter package of four. So we had like a platoon minus uh, that went that way, um, which is basically just, you know, not a, not an entire platoon due to how many packs we could fit on the, the birds. So we took those birds and we went out uh, just to, to sort of uh, prod and prod around that intelligence that we had. And, uh, and as we rounded sort of the last bend uh, coming to the target, uh, we started taking small arms fire. Uh, in all the birds, so the the uh, the LZs uh, sort of all went out the window, and we sort of just got off where we could, and um, and right from the start there was um, there was contact, and um, you know it was it was pretty hairy. Uh, so uh, you know we uh, we had four birds, so we had four teams in four different spots, uh, all doing different things. We one of the teams also had the um, the Afghanistan um, local police force with them, you know, so they always came with us on the um, on the operations. So they were uh, in one space, and then the three three other um, Australian um, commando teams were in another space. Um, you know, we initially the planning was just to go out and see what we could see, but r- like right from the start, like I said, it was um, it was fighting, you know, fighting for survival straight away. So you know, that sort of plan to see if we could gather intelligence went out the window, and we just started, uh, you know, started to fight and, and sort of coordinate our teams. Um, it came over the radio that we'd all, you know, immediately sustained in our casualties. So um, from the position I was in, um, 
our team had to move uh, across quite a big um, open space. Uh, so we fought our way across to where our command element was and then we fought from there towards the casualty. And at the same time, uh, he'd, uh, he'd taken a 7.62 round through his forearm but with no exit, so it went and uh, spiralled up his forearm into his elbow. And they were sort of fighting towards us, so you know we sort of met – uh, at a point, uh, had some cover, and uh, I, I sort of, you know, went straight to work. When I uh, when I first saw him, um, he had already had uh, uh, one of his operator mates had already put on like a field dressing uh, in the moment, but they were still firing, moving to get to our position. So when I uh, got there, it was it was on and it was absorbing some some blood, but it wasn't uh, you know heavily compressing the wound. So I I sort of could just move it around, and I could see straight away that it was about you know ten or twelve. Uh, centimeter size a wound just above the wrist and uh, so I went straight to work on that um, getting you know an arterial tourniquet out looping over his arm just to make sure that uh, if it did start to bleed heavily or, or uh, you know uh, it, need, it needed to immediately put that on and that was uh, going to be in place ready for me to do so I sort of cut back his uniform so I could see if there was anything else going on any shrapnel or anything else I wasn't aware about uh, and um a testament to his toughness. All he wanted to do was uh, have a drink. He said he he was dry in the mouth, and uh, <laughs> you know he just wanted to have some water and sit down. And I said, "Yeah, sure, no worries." You know, so I got someone to get him some water, and uh, I went to work. I just started packing his wound, and um, you know, uh, using a uh, a dressing to to cover that up. And um, as I was doing that, um, and uh, we had a bit of security around us, we we uh, got word that we had another casualty. So I sort of. Uh, did the best I could, made sure everything was sort of tidied up, and then handed that casualty over to um, to a, a combat first data, which is um, you know an infantry with some um, some point of injury care. So I gave that to him, and he sort of took that back because of the uh, the level of fighting. We couldn't get an AME bird in, so we uh, we had one of our insertion um, Blackhawks turn around and come and pick him up. So that was that was lucky because we were about forty minutes out from uh, from our from our original location. The footage, I suppose, that um, is used in the documentary is um, one of uh, one of the best operators that I've ever worked with. And um, what happens is he heads up the hill towards uh, one of the target compounds, and as he's rounding one of the corners, uh, one of the uh, one of the insurgents starts to engage him from outside of a doorway. So he, um, you know, he fights and, and keeps that um, uh, that insurgent suppressed in that doorway while we sort of got a plan together. Um, uh, to see what we could see but uh, eventually we um, you know he stayed inside the compound and we sort of uh, stayed outside the compound and it was a bit of a to and fro for a while so that's kind of what you can see in the footage there is just a back and forth of uh, of what um, you know the exchanges in and out of that doorway and um, eventually what happened was they uh, you know sort of made another plan and and um, you know uh, um, attacked the target from a different uh, different area and a different location. Yeah, I think in the video at one point, you, uh, I, I could be mistaken, but I think I remember seeing the guy kind of poke his head around the corner, or maybe that was yeah. outside of the door or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's got a, a bipod hanging off his weapon. Um, yeah, so that was you know a, a pretty intense day, and uh, but you can tell you know from the the audio of the um, of the footage that uh, you know there's some haste involved, but you know testament to the to the guys they're all calm and handle the situation quite well uh, considering i thought and at the time that this this fight took place you guys were mainly doing direct action stuff like going after like high value targets and stuff like that yeah that's correct yeah so that was exactly what was that there was a da on uh, on a high value uh intelligence that day um 
and uh, you know that would that would that was similar to you know um, the other operations that were going on at the time. Yeah. Right. And what year was that? Uh, Two thousand ten. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember the first. I, I believe that footage, that same footage, was used in the Voodoo Medics uh, yeah. documentary. But I remember seeing it a few years ago in, in some other kind of Australian uh, special forces like documentary, or or maybe it was something that someone put together on YouTube. I don't remember, but um, yeah, yeah. Sometimes when they do news pieces, they just grab you know whatever footage you know sort of suits the story at the time. Yeah. Right, and it was a it was footage from a helmet camp, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's, yeah, that's exactly right from the side side helmet cam. Yeah. Okay, and um, and you've treated, have you treated uh, civilians as well in Afghanistan or just Australians? Oh yeah, and no, most definitely civilians as well. Um, so I mean, a big part that makes it rewarding, and, and when people ask me about uh, you know service and and deployment and and the treatment of of injuries and casualties over uh, overseas, I always remind them that the biggest piece that, uh, or the most enjoyable piece, you know, one of the most enjoyable pieces over there is doing, uh, you know, medical caps where, you know, you can go into a township and just, you know, have a, a you know, a Bushmaster event full of uh, medical capability and just, you know, running, you know, like a little nurse's aid station or, or you know, a medic's aid station and, and helping absolutely everybody that, that I can on the ground. And, you know, with no contacts involved, and that's one of the most rewarding pieces is having, you know, children who need glasses or antibiotics or just basic pain care and, and uh, you know, fracture, you know, immobilization. All that sort of work uh, comes into to the piece as well, and, and, and it's a big part of what we did over there was, uh, you know, a lot of um, first aid care on the ground, uh, not, uh, not tactically. Yeah. Right. And I know, like, um, so I've had uh, Dan Pronk on the podcast before. And, yeah. And um, – Pronk is a doctor, and I, I know he was with the SAS, SASR. Uh, did you yep. guys also have doctors with you in the commando regiment, or was it just medics? Yeah, we definitely did, and a couple of times uh, they would come out. The, the unique piece about Dan is he's, uh, you know, he's a he's passed uh, the SSA, SAS selection, so he, um, you know, he can. Um, sort of run in both spaces at the same time he can be used you know, as a, that um you know combat doctor on the ground but he's also quite capable within the uh the tactical space as well whereas um there's not a lot of those uh you know getting right. around so we did have a doctor with us but uh you know only on small uh you know outside the y missions would they come and then you know they would just be on call uh, should they be needed in other situations okay nice and and so i know like uh on the american side like uh, an 18 Delta, like a special forces medic, um, they are generally, uh, at least on the American side, the highest trained medically, like proficient, proficiency wise. Yeah. And, um, you know, they can do like, uh, some dental work. They can also do like, uh, small kind of surgeries on the, on the battlefield. Um, and then, you know, there's different levels, like uh, the other units will take half of the, of the, the course, the the medical course, like like Air Force, Navy, uh, Marine Corps, and then the senior medics from those other special operations units will go through the entire course that the uh, the Green Beret, eighteen Deltas go through, yeah. and and they'll be on that kind of same level medically. Um, it, it, does such a thing exist in the Australian uh, special operations world? It's funny. I mean, I've worked closely with the ADA a couple of times um, with the 18 Deltas and, and some PJs and, you know, lots of different forces, you know, high level sort of uh, medical capabilities. And, uh, you know, we're sort of we're very, we're very close to pushing in that direction. Um, and, you know, as far as field surgeries and that sort of thing go, not so much. Uh, hmm. 
but uh, the capabilities of the special operations medics, um, you know, on the ground interventions is quite high right. uh, when compared to obviously your, you know, your uh, your regular army, uh, you know, medics as well. So, I mean, so, so to answer your question, I suppose, uh, you know, um, like having worked with some aiding Delta, some of the kit they have we don't have, and some of the kit we do have they don't have. So I guess it's sort of a bit of a chop and change about uh, you right. know where the capability lies. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so, Brad. Um, you know, when I received your bio from uh, Christian, she she emailed it to me. Uh, next to your name is uh, DSM. Does that stand for Distinguished Service Medal? Yeah, it does, John. Yeah. And is is that something that you were awarded from a specific incident? Yeah, it was a uh, an incident while I was deployed with the Special Air Service Regiment in uh, Afghanistan. Okay, is that something you can talk about, or you feel comfortable talking about? Yeah, look, uh, it's something I can talk about, and I think um, more more for the the why. Um, so, you know, I, I think as a medic, you spend a lot of time deployed on these operations, and you have lots of uh, you have lots of losses, and you have lots of little, you know, you're trying to validate your training and think, am I doing the right thing? And unfortunately, just due to the nature of the deployment, lots of people are injured, whether it's civilians allied partners or your own guys, you know, they get injured and, and some of them don't make it. Right. But for me, the, but for me, the jobs where they do make it or you, or you get to use your skill set for good, similar to Tomo, you know, that for me, kicking indoors and running around with guns is fun. Uh, but the, my drive was to, to be that guy on the ground that could help someone when they really needed it. And I, and I wanted to be that guy. So uh, in, in 2006, while I was deployed with the Special Air Service Regiment, I had, a, had that opportunity. We were, uh, I had a few opportunities, actually. But the one, the one I guess that stands out for me was uh, was a, was a really cool job that I we we were doing where we would jump on the the payforks, the US payforks that came up to our to the Tarrant Cow, and uh, and and jump out on on what we called voodoo voodoo uh, retrieval missions. So we'd go out and do uh, basic retrieval mi- missions from either other fobs or, or troops in contact at the time. So. Uh, for some reason, in 2006, the, uh, the the PJ command weren't sending their PJs up into uh, into Tarrant or into the province. They were being held purely for uh, downed aircraft. There was just this weird phase that was frustrating them at the time. Um, so we would jump on their pavehawks when they came up, and, and they usually had a, a an air force, some sort of random uh, normal air force medic on it. So if we weren't out doing DAs or out on patrols, uh, we would jump on these on these choppers. Uh, we were sitting in the uh, in the command center one day, and a, and a tick was in progress down in a town called Musakala. Oh, in, uh, sorry, one second. So when you were when you were then on these helicopters, you were working essentially as like a, a, a medical QRF kind of, or yeah, yeah. So we would be uh, we'd sit there as exactly as that, John, the the medical QRF for the for the province, and. We'd have an Apache gunship and, and a payfork with its uh, with its mini guns ready to go, so we nice. could do uh, you know a little bit better retrievals than than dust off, I guess. Um, so yeah, there was a there was, in the Helmand province next to us. There was a, a town called Musicalar, and uh, they were in heavy contact. The the British three para had just rolled into that town in in 2006, and they were uh, they were operating from there, and they they weren't really successful in that year with their campaigns, but. Um, on this particular day, one of the Danish pathfinders attached to them had been shot in the head by a sniper, uh, which initiated the uh, the contact as he was up on on the uh, compound wall. So he was in he was in a pretty bad way. We were listening to the uh, to the tick over the radio, and we were also listening to the Kazovac or the Nine Line come through. 
and initially because of the uh, the province they were in and the and the troops that were in contact, it was a British nine line. So it went up through the British system, who were using uh, Chinooks. They used Chinooks with a, mer- a medical re- a response team on them. Uh, but due to the compound and the area being in heavy contact, the uh, the, the British couldn't go in. They they didn't commit. They wouldn't commit a helicopter. Uh, so ne- next went to US Dustoff, who also um, declined at that point in time to to go in. And uh, and we were sitting there listening to this thing, and our, and our pilot, uh, a captain, he said, you know, maybe we should have a go and have a look. So we, we he reached out through Task Force Nighthawk and uh, and said we'd we'd deploy and and see if we could uh, go out. But with the proviso that, that they would put the guy into an armored vehicle and bring him outside the town, and uh, and we'd meet them at an LZ to the north of the uh, town. So we jumped, uh, we spooled up. Flew out to uh, Music Clouds about 45 minutes. The problem for us was being in Tarrant at the time. It was a long flight down to uh, Music really hot conditions. So we, we didn't have much uh, fuel time in the helicopter. So we, we wouldn't have much time on the ground when we got there. Anyway, we flew down and uh, and we hit the LZ and we hit the rendezvous point, but there was no one there. So we, we orbited a couple of times and we could see the town just to our south and uh, and the pilot you know, we're listening to this guy and we knew he was in a bad way. So the pilot asked if we wanted to go in, we'd just go for a quick sw- spin past the uh, the compound and just see if we could land or if there was the potential to land. So we uh, we came in over the town pretty low. And uh, and as we came towards their uh, their compound, they popped smoke and we could see there was a field again just to, uh, the, I think it was to the north of the compound. So the pilot indicated we we're going to try and uh, put in there pretty, pretty quick because we started taking around or they were having a crack at us at this point in time. And uh, as we as we came in low and uh, fast over the uh, town, they'd forgotten to turn off the dizzy, which is the uh, the countermeasures on top of the helicopter. So I had this uh, twelve hundred degree ball of chafe just fire straight oh, next wow. to my head, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I initially thought we'd taken an RPG hit, and uh, this ball just goes out and just I don't know rams straight into some person's compound. <laughs> anyway, we we came in pretty hard, and, uh, and and the chopper hit the ground pretty hard. And anyway, after the dust settled. Uh, Dave, the, the the Air Force medic, this guy, you know, this guy's straight out of basic training. He's not in the special operations community. Him and I disconnect and uh, and run to the back of the helicopter to go find this, uh, go find an entry into this compound. And obviously, they're still in contact at the other end. We could hear the uh, contact go on as we moved away from the uh, the noise of the helicopter. But this British dude puts his head over the top and and tells us there's a, about the casualty. And then we we indicated we needed him to bring him out and uh, he he declined. So uh, we're standing there wasting time and uh, I'm looking along this wall. It was a good few hundred metres long and I thought, oh, there's no door here. You know, there's no entry into this compound. Uh, and anyway, I look around and I see Dave's gone. He's uh, he's back in the helicopter at this stage. And I thought, oh, no, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in a bad place here. So I ran back to the helicopter, plugged in and, uh, and spoke to the captain and said, look, you know, they're not here. And... Uh, the compound looks like we're going to have to uh, go look for it. And uh, the captain said, well, you've got 10 minutes. So I can hold for 10 minutes, but but that's it. So I, uh, I, I grabbed uh, Dave and I realized that, you know, we're going to be fairly exposed as we move through the uh, through the town. So I, I borrowed one of the door gunners, a guy named Carl. He, uh, again, he's a door gunner on a chopper. He, he doesn't, I assume they do some sort of infantry minor tactics, but it's not his job. Um he he grabbed a saw, you guys call it, and uh, and we we jumped out and, and off we ran. So we ran around this compound into uh into the uh, you know 
just this eerie quiet as uh, you know you could hear the contact going on in the distance and obviously the noise those are, everyone's worked with uh, with hawks or blackhawks before just that noise and as we went, cleared the wall and got around the corner it just went dead quiet and uh, you know just just that eerie silence as as we were running trying to find a uh, an entry into this compound another couple of hundred meters and we and we got in we found a, an entry and we found this uh, Danish dude who'd uh, been sedated in the back of a an APC in the back of a um, uh, M113 in uh, in this compound and they were and they were working on him and you could see instantly he was in a he was in a pretty bad way he wasn't well but but he was at this point in time compensating so I had a quick discussion with the uh, the danish and the brit dudes I said we've got to go no time to muck around let's just go and uh they'd, they'd sedate him with a drug i'd never used before so <laughs> i was looking at this drug and i thought oh well, give me the soldiers five how does it work all right cool it's a normal anesthetic i'll, I'll be okay and uh, we, we negotiated to get a couple of guys to help carry the stretcher because, you know, these guys didn't want to come out at that point in time. They wanted to continue uh, supporting the fight, which was going on uh, on the other side of the compound. So anyway, we ran out and uh, we carried this guy for, you know, we were just running with this heavy dude on a stretcher around the, uh, around the wall. And as we came back into the field where the pavehawk was, about a dozen uh, militia had formed up in a creek line and started having a crack. And we, we had about, I don't know, 80 metres to run across the open with this guy so um carl jumped off the stretcher drunk down and just started laying down suppressive fire and uh and and we just took off across the you know we had to go if we didn't get him on the stretcher you know there was no doubt in my mind this guy wasn't going to make sorry if we didn't get him on the helicopter he wasn't going to make it so uh we just ran for it and uh got in the back of the helicopter started cutting away cords and uh carl jumped in got on the minigun kept the suppressive fire and uh and and away we went and uh so we flew, started flying. Uh, we weren't going to make our compound or we needed to get, get him back to a roll two to a proper hospital. We didn't have one in Tarrantout at that point in time. Um, so we, we started pushing for Kandahar. And uh, so this guy, we started working on him in the back. His O2 sats were right down about 60%. He was, he was going out the door. And, uh, and I realized we need to intubate him and get, a, and get a decent airway. So he'd had some sort of tube in there at the time. It wasn't working. So re-intubated in the back of the helicopter and, and got his O2 sats back up in the 90s and he, and he suddenly stabilised. And at that point in time, we just kept him sedated and, and got him to the hospital. So we worked on him for about 45 minutes. And as the uh, as the chopper landed in Kandahar, we were on bingo fuel. He'd, he'd flown past his his reserve and uh, he was shutting that thing down as soon as we landed. So uh, we jumped in the back of a, a US Humvee and, and got dropped off at the uh, at the hospital and, and handed over to the, uh, to the Canadians in the hospital there. And I guess uh, as you know, as we walked away, covered in sweat, and had all these lovely nurses giving us bottles of water and and uh, <laughs> cold towels, it was, it was surreal. Um, you know, it was a, it was a pretty cool feeling that we'd just handed over some guy. We didn't know his name; he would never know ours. But uh, you know, we'd paid a big part in in keeping him alive and 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 getting him home. So for me, that was probably the the highlight of our trip. We uh, you know, I, I was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal in uh, two thousand eight. Uh, for leading the medical team on that on that day, and the pilot was charged for flying the uh, helicopter to bingo fuel. So it didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't seem quite right to me. He copped a uh, he copped a kick in the ass, and we were all given a pat on the back. But uh, but uh, we but without a doubt, that guy, you know, making those decisions that day that he did, he uh, he he deserves better recognition, if not bigger recognition, than what we did. He uh, he was integral to that job. So yes, that was uh, the DSM. Nice, and um, and the, the DSM that was your first deployment into Afghanistan. 
yeah, my first and uh, and only deployment okay. in, into Afghanistan. And uh, you know, to be for me, uh, you know, two years later, this letter arrived in the mail, and 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 this uh, you know offer to be awarded a DSM came and it didn't I didn't really understand I, I couldn't see what the point was that was you know our job and and we'd done right. exactly what any other medic and any other person it didn't seem that that special to me and it still doesn't actually it's it, it literally is just our job at the time and anyone else in the same circumstances would do the same thing but to to have it awarded and and to highlight the work that you know all those medics do there's so many medics I've worked with same as Tommy who who are you know silent and they've done amazing things and never to never received the recognition to have that the group I guess highlighted a little bit more that for me was a, was a pretty special honour and to be a part of that uh, for everyone else was was pretty cool. And you you were still in when you received the the uh, the award. Yeah, I was uh, I was a sergeant at this point in time. Still, I was running the uh, training med training uh, wing at SASR. And uh, yes, yeah, so I was still still serving at that point in time. I'm still I'm still technically serving now. I'm, I'm a reservist now. Uh, okay. Been out for nine years, but I still love the army, and uh, I'm still serving. Okay, and um, so I also wanted to ask, and I, I guess for both of you guys, um, some of what I've seen, like I've had a uh, an 18 Delta on before, and um, he had a couple of rotations to Afghanistan, and. Uh, specifically, we, we were talking one time, and he was telling me about uh, how they were in a gunfight, and then um, uh, I guess they left that area, and then the next day they came back, and they were like IEDs, and this one girl had stepped on an IED, and um, so they're trying to save her, and he couldn't. And for some reason, I mean, not for some reason, but you know, for the reasons that it was a little girl, it was difficult for him to talk about it. And um, and even though it's it's not an American, it's you know it's uh, it's a young Afghani girl. And did you guys feel like, as medics, as special operations medics, that it, it was more difficult to treat children who were wounded out there? Cool. Um, yeah, it always is. Um, and uh, you know, n- nobody wants to see children injured. It's just uh, it just doesn't add up. So. Yeah, of course. I think one of the things that helped me approach all treatment and and, uh, and how I operated within Afghanistan was I just uh, pre-deployment, I would put a lot of work into into myself, you know, um, psychologically. And then when I was there, I would just uh, focus on uh, the signs and the symptoms and the injury and not the person. Uh, and that's how you can sort of get through it is if you just focus on uh, on the life and, and doing what you can and, and then, you know, from start to finish, that's uh, that's kind of how I approached absolutely every single uh, injury and casualty over there. And that way I didn't differentiate. I was always on, you know, using the top of my game for absolutely everything. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, similar to Tomo, I think, if, if, for every soldier, it doesn't matter how staunch or how tough you are. Seeing kids, uh, kids injured and caught up in the middle of what we're doing over there, it's it's pretty hard on everyone. And uh, you know, it is it is unfortunately part of war. It always has been and always will be. You know, civilian populations are, are usually caught up, particularly with the nature of uh, battles nowadays. And uh, and so you do have to to deal with these. And as a medic, you know, it's our role predominantly to support our team, but. You know, if if we see a civilian, then then of course we're going to render support to them as well. And and if you see a kid, a hundred all stops will usually be pulled out. Doesn't matter what what country they're from. I think at the time, similar to Tomo, you're clinical. You don't you, at 
you know, whilst you're on the ground, the, the mission is to, to save their life or to, or to, you know, decrease pain or to, or to do something medical. Um, the emotional side of it doesn't really have time to kick in at that point in time. You really have to do your job and, and get on with it. And, um, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of jobs over there where, you know, terrible things happened. But in the moment, you don't really think about it. You just get on that, you know, you've been dealt a you know, set of circumstances and these are the symptoms and the signs in front of me. I need to deal with them. And then, and then you move on to the next set and then the next set. And, uh, and so you don't really have time to really reflect on the moment. And you don't want that person on the ground. You don't want the medic on the ground to be, uh, to be breaking down and not able to help um, at, in that moment. And then that's not to say we're robots and, and you can't be emotionally affected by it. Of course, of course you are. But at the time on the ground, I think, it, you know, most of the guys, the way we train and the way we are perhaps inclined to operate is you, you put that stuff to the side at that, in that moment and you get on with the job. Yeah, I think Afghanistan specifically, it, uh, it is the most mined country on the planet um, with the Russians having been there in the 80s and fighting against the Taliban in the 80s. When they left, they left a bunch of mines uh, in Afghanistan, and they're now known as legacy mines. So then you have to deal with the mines left by the Russians and then the mines that are, are the IEDs left by the Taliban and al-Qaeda and now ISIS uh, in Afghanistan. So it's really dangerous for civilians and, and uh, service members alike. Yeah, look, I think, um, yeah, potentially, Particularly, sorry for the uh, for the civilians, John. It's you know they live with this every day. Day one, we landed in uh, in Tarankat about ten o'clock at night, and uh, at seven o'clock the next morning, we went down to the. At that point in time, we had a field surgical team from the US uh, attached to our base. Uh, we went down to those guys and uh, you know to introduce ourselves, and a guy was brought in ten minutes later who had uh, stood on a landmine during a feud with his neighbour. His neighbour was was pissed off at him, so he went and got a uh, mine. And any personnel mine dug, dug it up and put it out the front of this guy's compound, then called him out. Wow. And uh, obviously, as the guy came out, he, he's triggered the landmine. And, you know, these, these sorts of activities and this sort of feudal war uh, confrontations between each other, it wasn't uncommon. It, it was every day. Every single day, you'd, you'd see someone blown up or shot or stabbed. Or It's commonplace. Mm. Yeah, frustrating too. I remember... Uh, having uh, done a night uh, a night reconnaissance walk, and then uh, have a Bedouin camp come past our position the next day, uh, walking exactly where we were, um, and uh, between the time we'd returned from our reconnaissance to the time this Bedouin camp had come past the next day would have only been about three hours. But where we walked, uh, they walked the next morning, and uh, they set off two IDs, uh, which killed a couple of camels and a young a young uh, local. A, lo- a young local guy, and so we ran up there to respond, and he was um, he was well past saving. But the, I guess the most frustrating point is that uh, you know no one wants to talk about anything, and in fact the uh, the father of the young man that was killed that day he uh, that was his third son that he'd lost wow. uh, to IDs, and uh, he still um, you know he still wouldn't uh, you know uh, give any information or anything towards uh, you know helping the coalition in any way, which was frustrating. I think the other thing for me too that was frustrating, and I know it frustrated a lot of us, was their willingness to use uh, and to engage us with civilians in their vicinity. You know, if we were at home, we wouldn't uh, pick a fight with anyone else. You know, if our families or right. our, or or other families were were in our vicinity, if we thought they could be hit with collateral damage, but you know, these guys would have a have a crack at us from houses, and and knowing full well the response that we would have to bring sometimes. Yep. 
I, I remember being in a in a contact in a fairly heavy contact. We were QRF for um, a US uh, agency and their and their Afghan special forces uh, partners. They were they were hitting a high value target one night, and these guys were they, they were getting pumped from the uh, helo insertion from the moment that thing landed. To the, they they initiate entry on the house and the compound, but intelligence was way under strength, and uh, and they were just they were just pinned down. So. We went to uh, we went in to, to help them this night at about one o'clock in the morning, and we, we were ambushed on the way in. It took us a good hour to fight towards them, and uh, you know we, we were pretty lucky that night. So we were able to get them out, but you know the whole night we had a C-130 gunship go Winchester above us. You know it ran out of ammo. We were just in contact for about three or four hours. Just you know these guys they had us. You know we were, we were in a pretty sketchy spot for a couple of moments there. Anyway, so. It, Long story short, we got out, and um, the next morning I was. We'd got back to Tarankau. A couple of our vehicles had been disabled. Uh, you know, a few of the Afghan SF had been killed, uh, and a few guys injured. But we got back to the uh, to the to the Tarankau and de-service weapons, and sort of you know had breakfast and, and went to bed. And 20 minutes later, my boss came and got me and said, "Hey, you've got to come down to the FST. They've got mass casualty coming in." So uh, rolled down there, and, and it was all these civilians who'd been caught up in this uh, in this contact the night before, you know. And it was uh, all these people that had been in houses, you know, dozens and dozens of people just just really badly injured. And you know, they'd obviously been caught up in our crossfire. And you, you know, you think about this later. For me at the time, I was like, you know, just angry at them that they would start a fight amongst these sort of people. And uh, but also, you know, there's an acceptance that that's just the way it is there. And and unfortunately, that's the way they think and the way they operate. And for me, I guess all of the guys came home in one piece of sorts, but everyone came home that night and we did the best we could uh, to, to limit the damage to, to buildings. But, you know, it is frustrating to see these people getting injured uh, occasionally as a byproduct of our battle, of our combat. So I find that probably even more frustrating than, than the IEDs and such. It's just the, the willingness to, to engage behind civilian population. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a part of their, their, their strategy and their tactics is to um, is to do that. And one thing that kind of frustrates me is, uh, at least on the American side, is, you know, I have people that I actually know. And um, uh, it was, I forget when, maybe two, a couple of years ago, I see them posting like on Facebook and social media. You know, talking about how the uh, I think specifically this incident was an American uh, contact and a bunch of civilians were killed. And I, I think the the coalition forces, I, I don't think up to any point in history has a a side in a fight gone to such great lengths to avoid casualties of civilians. I think typically war is like we're just going to you know, destroy everything we can incite and, and whoever is standing is standing. And, but I think now, especially with Afghanistan and Iraq and, and other places, it's gotten to a point where, you know, there are certain rules and, and don't get me wrong. I, I'm not advocating for civilians or people who aren't involved in the fighting to get killed. But I think, um, the, the other side uses that as a tactic and, and it just kind of frustrates me to see, civilians from, you know, our allied nations kind of uh, pointing the finger at our militaries and not saying anything about the other side. And uh, there was a HBO documentary, I think it was in 2012 or 2010, when there was a surge. Uh, uh, at the time, uh, Barack Obama had ordered a, 
a surge of troops in Afghanistan. And uh, it was a Marine, a U.S. Marine element. And they were, I think it was in southern Afghanistan. I, I can't remember exactly, but they were pushing through these villages in a, a big push to retake uh, some territory. And as they're fighting, you know, there's like a, a camera crew attached to them as they're fighting. Um, they're getting shot at from like certain compounds, right? So then they wait a few minutes and then you'll see like six or seven women and children come running out the compound. And then there's like one or two dudes mixed in between them. And you know, those are the guys who are shooting at them, but they can't shoot back because they're surrounded by civilians. And all of this is on the, uh, the HBO documentary and you can see and hear the frustration in the Marines faces and voices. And, um, I think had it been the other way around, like had the, uh, the Taliban had the capabilities of, at, let's say, in that fight, the U.S. Marines, they would have just destroyed everything and not even thought twice about it. And I think it's just something that people in the West take for granted when they're when we're talking about, you know, how our uh, militaries are fighting against this type of enemy, you know? Yeah, man, you've got... Um you know, you've got 18 to 25 year olds in, in really stressful conditions and really hard moments, perhaps with their mates getting hit, having to make huge, huge calls and huge decisions. And, you know, to show that restraint to not shoot at those guys is, you know, testament to those, to those Marines on the day. And, uh, you know, I guess we, we've got to take the mo- all we can do in these situations is take the moral high ground, and, and that's what separates us from them, right? Is right. That we won't, we won't willingly engage non-combatants, whether they're win- women and children or others. So, that that's the only way we can deal with that is is ideologically, right? Um, so, so kind of uh, switching back to the uh, Voodoo Medics documentary, um, I, I wanted to ask you guys, you know, as you were doing it, and then as it was finished, is it something that you watched with your families? You get first time, mate. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so you know, my wife being an ex uh, ex army medic as well, you know, she uh, she gets it, you know. So she, uh, you know, everything that was going on with uh, the explanation of all the guys, you know, she uh, she's got insight into as well. So I definitely watched it with her. I haven't shown. I got two young uh, two young boys. They haven't seen it yet. Uh, you know, I don't think they'd uh, fully grasp the concept of it yet. So you know, that'll be good for. You know the legacy when they're a lot older, or you know when I can put things into context for them, I can show that uh, that documentary. So the documentary, uh, it's amazing and put together so well and, and humbling. Um, so yeah, I, I've seen it through to. Uh, yeah, my father's passed away now, but uh, you know my mum's seen it, and uh, you know a couple other members of the family that uh, that I know, um, you know, have a good understanding of of what uh, you know the service was like. Um, yeah, so definitely they've all watched it. Uh, you know, I'm definitely pro uh, voodoo medics getting out there and being seen. Yeah, I um, I didn't watch it with my family. I, I guess I watched it by myself. I wanted to know what it, I, I've completed a media thing before, which I didn't really <laughs> enjoy. Um, but yeah, Kristen's done an amazing job in, in telling this story, and and you know, had a lot of integrity and 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 told the story exactly how she said she was going to, and and with with the message she said she was going to. So, um, I live in a in a small country town in Australia, and I, I unfortunately my family aren't here with me, so I, I watched it by myself. Uh, but sent the link out and, and provided the link to all of my friends and family who for, you know, 99% of them, this is the most I've ever talked about my, my military time. I, 
it, it was a chapter in my life that ended nine years ago and I loved it. And uh, at the time, I, you know, we didn't talk about it a lot and, and now I don't really talk about it a lot. It's just a, a phase that I was in uh, nine years ago. So um, to, to be able to talk about it and talk about some of those, you know, more intense moments and, and I guess to get to where to explain who I am and where I am today, I guess it was, it was a really cool method of doing that to talk about that chapter of life and, and, and the amazing people that I worked with, you know, these, these other voodoo medics and the operators that I worked with were, you know, people doing incredible things in, in highly stressful times. So yeah, it was, it was good to get it out. And, um, so Tom, I wanted to ask, and, and, um, you know, sorry about your father passing away, but, you know, as an American who, who had moved out there, did he lose his accent? Like, did he end up with an Australian accent? <laughs> yeah, no, never. Uh, you know, to a certain degree he did, uh, but there were certain things that I could never let him forget. Um, his pronunciation. So he was, uh, he's from, uh, you know, New California. He was from, um, you know, that side of town. So that there would be specific things that every single time he would say them, I would repeat them to him to the point where he told me to shut up um, <laughs> you know, just because, uh, you know, that's just how it was. And, and he stood out uh, even after 30 years uh, of him being here. You know, there were some things that he that he couldn't get right, like saying the word, uh, like we say measure, mm-hmm. and he would say major, major and I would just <laughs> pound him with that every day, every day he say it. So uh, he avoided using that word as much as he could, but uh, yeah, yeah. There were some things he just couldn't get past. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's pretty interesting. I mean, um, and then of course, Australia was also involved in the Vietnam War. I think specifically the um, the SAS, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, we were fairly. We had uh, infantry battalions there. Okay. okay. Yeah. Pretty much every uh, every war you guys have been in for the last hundred years, we've been there. Right. <laughs> we like to come <laughs> so um and and then tom if you don't mind me asking how, how did your father end up going to australia like was it like a vacation and he decided he liked it or i mean if, if you don't want to answer that's fine yeah no that's fine so uh you know because he, he was scripted in 66 uh, you know, so after his mandatory time uh, was up, he, he got out um, and his brother, like I said, he was conscripted at the same time. So they sort of, uh, yeah, his brother ended up being a clerk. Uh, he went to paratroopers, so they had completely different uh, uh, careers uh, within defense, but they both had their time being able to be finished up um, at the same time. So they both got out and um, his brother stayed in the States. And I think my my daddy went uh, straight into to to university or college and he started studying business administration and, and then he got a chance to uh, have a year off. So he decided to come to Australia uh, and that's where he met my mum. And I think that, you know, they both moved back to the States for a while, but uh, okay. you know, he, he really fell in love with the country. So, you know, he finished his, uh, his studies and then they moved out here. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So, um, so the, the Voodoo Medics documentary, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't know what really what to expect. Um, when I first saw it and then, uh, Christian had sent me the link. Um, I had first seen, I think it was, uh, Dan Pronk and, uh, Mark Donaldson was sharing it on social media. That's kind of what I first, uh, became aware of it. And I didn't really know what to expect. Um, cause like in the, in the kind of realm of military kind of content, uh, creation was audio or video. Uh, some some of it is presented really well and and it kind of like touches deep and some of it not so much you know so I wasn't sure what to expect but then um, 
as I was watching it, uh, I forget what episode it was. It might have been four. Um, and then you, you just, I think it was actually Brad, I think, where like some, some, you were telling a story and I think some of the emotions were starting to kind of come to the surface. And, um, once I saw that, I was like, wow, like this is like really capturing like the real deal, you know? And, and I think that's when it really hit me. I'm like, this is really well, this is really done well. And, um, it's not like some sugar-coated, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky kind of thing. It's like this is what these guys were really going through, and this is what, you know, they were really experiencing. And I think when you're talking about things that involve uh, life and death and, and being on the, that line so quite often as you are in a, in a, a combat deployment, um, I think all of that stuff is, is very real, you know, for the human experience. And I, I think... They, Christian did a great job in capturing that, and I think you guys did well in, in being honest and sharing your stories. And um, for for anyone listening, uh, I'm going to link uh, for the documentary on the podcast notes and social media. So uh, I highly recommend that you check it out, and and you can see and, and hear from these guys directly, um, and not only from Tom and Brad, but there are several other. Uh, medics or kilos as they call them uh in the documentary sharing their their different experiences uh in afghanistan and i think it's like i said it's really done incredibly well um and also i want to thank you guys for doing this as well um you know my audience is mainly american but i i know that people like to hear from you know our allied uh uh, warriors as well yeah thanks for having us john yeah, thanks, John. I think uh, you know that uh, the fact that Voodoo Medics is getting out there internationally is terrific. And um, I just wanted to say that uh, you know, there's, I'm sitting here right now. I can think of you know 10, 12, 15 other Voodoo Medics that didn't uh, you know actively contribute to the documentary, but that have actively you know contributed to the you know to the fraternity and the brotherhood that it is. And 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 uh, you know, especially when you compare, you know. Um, specialists in the field, like, you know, if you speak about Grossman or you speak about Joe Kender in the police, or, you know, law enforcement, it's good to to have those sort of, uh, you know, points of reference that you can have. And, and it's good to, that, uh, you know, the Special Operations Medics of Australia, uh, you know, have that voice. So just quickly, if, if one of you guys can explain the, the, the name Voodoo Medics. I think you did it well in the documentary, John. No, sorry, yeah. Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it was Tom. You were the one who explained it in the actual documentary, right? Yeah. So okay. the, yeah, the catchphrase being, uh, you know, we'll do the voodoo so you can do what you do. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's uh, us, you know, basically just saying that we're, we're, we're really, really keen to do, uh, you know, point of injury in battlefield medicine. And then we're going to do that and you can rely on that. So you can focus on, uh, you know, everything else and we'll take that space up and you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, when I heard that, I was like, "That's that's pretty cool." Like the the whole concept of it, um, just the name and everything like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, the voodoo medics, uh, the the and Jody sums it up quite well as well with the dark humor. I mean, Australians have got quite a sarcastic humor, and uh, you know, there's no shortage of that, uh, you know, throughout uh, throughout the military as well. So uh, you know, it fits perfectly, I think. You know, Australians are like some of the nicest people I've ever met. Like I, I like in my like outside of this, the podcasting and stuff, uh, I come across some Australians quite often in, in New York, and they're like the nicest people like you ever meet. Um, 
so it's just interesting to kind of see some of the, or hear some of that dark humor and you know from the combat veterans from Australia. Yeah, I think uh, I think the Americans that we worked with always found it very confronting when we'd be abusing our mates. <laughs> <laughs> they, they'd be they'd be confused when we'd say terrible things about our mates, but you know, we, we if we said nice things, something would be wrong. So. <laughs> All right, cool. So uh, again, I want to thank you guys for doing this. You know, I, I appreciate it. I know the audience is going to appreciate it. And uh, thank you for your service as well. Yeah, appreciate it. Hey, thanks for your thanks, time, John. John. Yeah, thanks for having us, John.